Good morning. It's good to be here today. If you have not met me yet, I'm Pastor Hannah. I'm worship and a discipleship pastor here at Centennial Road Church. It is a beautiful fall day. Again, we're good to go. Thank you, team, for all you've done. One of my greatest heroes is Harriet Tubman. In fact, before we knew we were having a girl this time around, I was convinced that I wanted to name one of my future daughters, Etta, for Harriet. But one day that all changed when I was playing around with the names in my head, and I just realized what I had done. <laughs> Henry and Etta. Henrietta. Oh. Henrietta is a random suburb of my home city of Rochester, New York. It's not necessarily embarrassing, but it kind of is. It'd be like if one of you guys named your kid Gan and the other kid Anakwe, or Press and meet my, my other kid Scott, right? That You just don't do that kind of thing. I was definitely not going to be caught running around a playground in the future yelling Henrietta everywhere I went. I think all the people from my home would be like, dang, Hannah was obsessed with a really bizarre, not bizarre, but boring suburban part of Rochester, one filled with chain stores and fast food. So I definitely did not want to be associated with that. No offense to any of my amazing friends who still live in Henrietta or ever lived in Henrietta, in case you're listening. Maybe I'll name the seventh or eighth kid Etta. I don't know. If it won't get associated with Henry's name. Did anybody freak out there? Pastor Eric was here, he would be freaking out. Yeah, all right, Colleen. Colleen's ready for it. I have to push the limits a little bit because Justin sneaks those snarky remarks into every sermon he preaches, it seems like, just trying to make it even. Harriet Tubman, in my opinion, should have every kid named after her for the rest of human history. She's a hero. She's my hero because of what she fought for, what she dreamed for, what she hoped for and lived for. She's saved so many lives doing what all of us are called to do, to go where God calls us and to rescue as many people as possible along the way, both physically and spiritually. The reason the history of abolition and civil rights penetrates my heart so much is because of the improbability that things would actually get better, the impossibility that people's hearts would transform and the impracticality that one good person or a few good people could actually change the world. It's one of the greatest examples of believing that the impossible is in fact possible with God's help. So here are a couple of Harriet Tubman quotes to get us started for today. Twasn't me, twas the Lord. I always told him, I trust you. I don't know where I'm going or what to do, but I expect you to lead me and he always did. I would fight for my liberty so long as my strength lasted, and if the time came for me to go, the Lord would let them take me. Lord, I'm going to hold steady on to you, and you've got to see me through. Harriet firmly believed that what she was fighting for, this impossible task God was calling her to, was worth dying for, but it wasn't just worth dying for either. I want to take a moment to clarify because I think we're so prone to go from zero to 100 and miss all of those life lessons in between. Harriet also believed her dream was worth living for. The impossible dream of escaping slavery, finding freedom and bringing others to experience the same was worth living for in every terrifying moment 
every minute of crippling anxiety, every gunshot heard in the distance, every debilitating thought and fearful thought being caught and tortured, every mile of walking with blisters and sickness and in pain, she knew her dream wasn't just worth dying for. It was worth living for in every agony-filled, life-threatening moment. Harriet's integrity and bravery reminds me of somebody we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in our group's campaign and weekly sermons, and that person is Daniel. So we'll be reading out of Daniel chapter 2 today, but before we get started, I just want to give a little bit of background, some repeating of what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. It's year, year two of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and Daniel, who is still a teenager at this point, is an Israelite refugee living in Babylon against his will. Him and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are just a few of this young, strong Israelite men who were taken from their homeland to be trained and brainwashed to become Babylonians. Even their original names were changed into Babylonian names, stripping them of all their cultural and family identity. Most commentators place Daniel somewhere in his three-year training program when this chapter takes place. So the chapter opens with King Nebuchadnezzar having a disturbing, very troubling dream. And he commands his magicians and astrologers that not only must you interpret it, but you must repeat it for me because I can't trust what your interpretation is unless you prove to me that you know what you're doing. So just because of how disturbed he was about this dream, he became angrier with each passing moment, each stalling tactic used by the wise men, each excuse given to him. King Nebuchadnezzar eventually threatened to put to death every wise man in all of Babylon unless they could answer his impossible request. A decree was issued that all the wise men in the kingdom, including Daniel and his friends, were to be found and executed. So we're picking up here in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with the wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret his dream for him. The first thing we need to notice here is that Daniel bravely trusted that his faithful God would provide a solution to him even before God gave him the answer. Picking up in 17, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now stepping back from this passage, we see that the very next thing Daniel acted upon was gathering his friends to pray because he knew that prayer was effective. And again, he trusted that God would hear them and he would answer them. In James 5.17, it says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Rick Warren debriefs it like this. When you thank God in advance, it's faith. When you thank him afterward, that's gratitude. Then Rick challenges us by saying, what keeps you awake at night like Daniel? And have you stayed up all night to pray about it? That's convicting. <laughs> Daniel demonstrated both faith and gratitude. He demonstrated going to prayer to remain calm when you're asked to do something impossible. Avenda Lippins puts it like this, prayer is the bridge between panic and peace. So we're picking up in verse 19 and we find Daniel during the night 
receiving the revelation of the king's dream through a vision. And verses 20 through 23 capture Daniel, his beautiful prayer of praise to God as his first response. He praises God for his wisdom and power, for hearing his prayers and answering them, for revealing the king's dream. What an incredible example to us that the very moment Daniel hears from God, he praises him. Not after the conversation with the king was resolved or it went over well, and not after he was completely out of the clear, but immediately upon hearing from God. In verse 24, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Arioch took, the, or Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can tell you what his dream means. Interesting, Arioch. That's not what happened. Then the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. There's a lot to notice in this section. Here we find Daniel being willing to act right away. He didn't start to talk himself out of anything or justify anything. Instead, he was obedient to the conscience God gave him. He acted not only on behalf of his friends, but on behalf of the wise men who would have been considered his enemies. The next thing to notice is that Daniel gives all the credit to God. In contrast to Arioch, who was attempting to take all the credit for finding Daniel when really Daniel found him, Daniel showed humility and trust. He didn't feel the need to boast about himself, to protect him, but instead he rested in the identity as God's beloved. He didn't take the credit to prove himself because God already proved himself faithful to Daniel out of the miracle of the vision. Regardless of the counter-beliefs of the king standing right before him, Daniel glorified God in public. And skipping past the dream itself, because we just don't have enough time today to cover all of that, we find a very shocked and thankful king who seems more than pleased with Daniel's interpretation. In verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, lavished him with many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. After all the trusting, the praying, the acting, Daniel simply received. He received the blessings of knowing the true God. He was connected to true providence, peace, and power. And in connection to that blessing, he chose to bless others. Not only did he, in verse 24, ask the king to spare the other wise men, who were deceptive people at that, but he also chose to elevate his friends when he was rewarded at the end of the chapter. Daniel knew that the story was never about him, but God could use him to enrich the lives of others and ultimately bring a pagan king to his knees. We are currently on week three of our sermon 
people, Thriving No Matter What Hits You by Rick Warren. It's an incredible, relatable study, and I'm excited about what the next few weeks hold for us together. To be honest, when I found out that my sermon was falling on this week, when God asks you to do the impossible, I was really excited. Doing brave, crazy things is actually right up my alley. But when I started diving in deeper and preparing for this week, I realized that I wasn't supposed to be talking about Daniel's boldness or his ability to chase God-given dreams today. So I asked God for clarity. I asked him to reveal to me the parts of the chapter that would convict my spirit and challenge me. And dream chasing, for better or for worse, happens to be a regular reality for me. It it comes fairly easily. So how could I come up with relatable stories for people with varying personalities and life experiences? I told Justin what I was thinking, and we tried to brainstorm a little together. I asked for his input. And he agreed, another direction might be better. We couldn't really think of specific times I had backed down on a challenge or didn't speak up for something I believed in, didn't follow through with something God put on my heart. It's not bad to talk about that trait of boldness that we can learn to have in facing the impossible, but Daniel's story isn't about sheer bravery. Instead of thinking of the impossible in light of dreams and leaps into the unknown, I started to think of the other side of the equation, the daily perseverance we need in the face of adversity, a trait of daily surrender that leads to an ongoing, complete trust in the God of the impossible. So we talked about impossible as ways I've experienced personal pain and how that has brought me into a deeper understanding of a more daily bravery that comes with struggling, struggling to believe that things could ever change while simultaneously hoping they will. In other words, sometimes doing the impossible is believing that our thorn in the flesh, as Paul calls it, can not only be used by God, but can be healed or changed by God's ability to do the impossible on our behalf. How hardships in our lives can often lead to our best testimonies of God's saving grace and power. So it became clear to me to focus on Harriet and Daniel. Not strictly on their boldness of personality, but on their long-suffering nature. Their ability to persevere no matter how scary the odds were how fearful they may have been in their hearts. So instead of giving pointers on how to live your most bold lives, I want us to focus on how God has given us the daily grace to be long-suffering, like Harriet and Daniel, to be hopeful in the face of strong adversity. We all face impossible situations. Cancer seems impossible to beat. Broken relationships seem impossible to mend. Job loss seems impossible to overcome, and war and poverty and big, huge things that seem so overwhelming for the whole world seem impossible to even begin to change. If all of us took a moment right now, I think that each and every one of us could think of an area of our lives or in the life of a friend where we are, we are seeing something impossible. And I don't think it's just in the past. I think in the present, we could all find those things. So what do we do then when we're asked to face the impossible? Number one, I believe facing the impossible requires us exchanging our finite abilities for God's infinite power. D.L. Moody says, God doesn't expect the impossible from us. He wants us to expect the impossible from him. In Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. 
but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Matthew 17, 20, I tell you the truth, even if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And I love this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. The God whom we worship is not a weak and incompetent God. He is able to beat back gigantic waves of opposition and to bring low prodigious mountains of evil. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able. Number two, facing the impossible encourages our raw cries for help. My family was in an awful car accident when I was 14 years old. My parents, my little brother, and my little sister were all driving home from a funeral together while my older brother and I were in school. And I'll never forget that feeling of being called into the hallway by the principal and, and literally thinking, what did I do this time? But being met instead by words, news that would make my stomach drop and would rock my world for the next few months and way into my future. I've had a lot of weird, sad, hard things happen in my life like everyone else. Deaths of people close to me, emotional pain early on and just in my relationship, excruciating physical and medical issues all throughout my life. Some of these impossible things, these painful memories, are long in the past, and they've been healed and resolved, but some of them are still there, still seeming like mountains of impossibility before me. My family did not die in that accident. They were spared. But the months that followed were a blur of fearful hospital visits including one celebrating my 15th birthday. I thought I lost all of them, all of them at once. But even when that fear and that anxiety and those stitches and those, those casts and the initial shock wore off, we still thought we might lose my little brother Luke to his severe injuries. At that time in my life, the most impossible thing for me to do was to literally sing Praise You in the Storm for a special music in church a couple Sundays later, while most of my family was still in the hospital recovering from insane amounts of trauma. I cried pretty much through the entire way that song. But while I felt the weight of the impossible resting on my shoulders, I also felt the hands of God. We can be real and we can cry out to God. It doesn't make us weak and it doesn't prove him unfaithful. In fact, it brings us closer to him. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands in challenge and controversy. If we cry out to God and stand firm in our faith toward him, we will receive what we need to make it through to praise him even in the most impossible storms. Number three, facing the impossible urges us to save others as we have been saved. I think one of the greatest gifts I've received from personal pain in, in my testimony is empathy for other people. In every area I have suffered, I have found myself that much more aware of the needs of those around me. In fact, I've found that either whether my wounds have been physical, mental, or emotional, God has used each and every story as a testimony to his faithfulness. 
Rick Warren puts it like this, other people are going to find healing in your wounds. Your greatest life messages and your most effective ministry will come out of your deepest hurts. When we switch our perspectives from being only victims to being victors, we can receive the comfort of knowing we are helping others walk through their impossibilities. Even in Daniel, we see him use his hardships for others. Rick Warren says, God isn't just interested in Daniel. He's interested in the pagan king. Don't take the credit. Point people to God. Recognizing that God can use us despite the tragedies we've gone through or our incapability of doing the impossible thing on our own is freeing. Reinhard Bonnke says, does the prospect of seeing the great commission of Christ fulfilled drive you day in and day out? If not, then I pray that the story of my life will light a fire for you. A fire that changes everything. A holy fire that will convince you that nothing is impossible to God. And if we combine those phrases, I pray that the story of my life will convince you that nothing is impossible with God. Number four, facing the impossible allows us to find the balance between power and perseverance. One area of my life that has been a perfect example for me about learning that balance between boldness of personality and perseverance of character has been being a woman pastor. If we're all being honest, we're in a Westland church that fully embraces women in leadership, but it's still not the most widely accepted career choice in the evangelical world. In fact, I face hurt and disappointment almost every time I open up about my calling. Every, even in my own career, I can see how God used that boldness of personality to survive even the toughest blows of discouragement. But I think this simple example is actually so much more than a one-time act of obedience. It's a willingness to put myself through pain over and over again for the sake of God's plan for me. To suffer and live in a tension that on one hand says, you're hearing the voice of God wrong. You're not living like a Christian. And on the other hand, hearing the Holy Spirit's strong voice of affirmation. I have to admit, it's hard. It's really hard. When Justin and I speak to people in certain settings and they only look him in the eye as if I'm not there. When they only ask his opinion on leadership or business or music or pastoral calling. When they only give him job opportunities that we're both qualified for. It's hard feeling underappreciated, undersupported, and sometimes straight under attack for something God has called me to do. Even in my career, I have felt like Daniel. And I'm not telling this specific part of my story to gain pity, to gain empathy, but rather to show you that we all have daily feats that seem impossible. And this is one of mine. Doing the impossible often isn't a one-time call and a one-time answer. It's the daily surrender in the life of following Jesus, and it is so worth it. Martin Luther King Jr. says, Courage is an inner resolution to go forward despite obstacles. 
Cowardice is submissive surrender to circumstances. Courage breeds creativity. Cowardice represses fear and is mastered by it. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency, expediency asks the question, is it politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? And there comes a time when we must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one that we take because it's right. The impossible is not about having a bold personality or a hopeful disposition. It's about long-suffering and endurance. It's believing that the God who called you will provide for you. Change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through continuous struggle. Martin Luther King Jr. for the clutch today, guys. <laughs> it's about both the struggle and the leaps. So maybe you're here today, and the impossible is taking the form of a marriage that is hanging on by a thread. You can't see how God could possibly allow it to survive, let alone find resolve and become healthier than ever. Or maybe you're here and you've experienced a tremendous amount of physical or emotional or mental pain, and it's bad enough that you can't see the possibility of healing, but you're feeling forgotten and unseen by the people closest to you, and it's another jab in your already wounded heart. Maybe you're here and you've been trying so hard to get pregnant, and that positive test result has still not happened for you. And your spouse and your hearts are broken. Or maybe you've miscarried and you've lost the baby you were finally able to conceive. Or maybe you've lost a child at any age. And that gaping hole you experience as a parent or a want-to-be parent seems impossible to fill. Maybe life is going just fine for you. Maybe things are cruising along quite nicely, but at the same time you feel this numbness due to inaction of obeying God into an even bigger and scarier dream he might have for you. My challenge to us today is to follow Daniel's lead, to believe that God's faithfulness before the answer even comes, to gather our friends and pray, to praise God for hearing us before the journey is even complete, to act in obedience, to give God the credit to ultimately receive the blessing of knowing that our true God is on our side. It's him who provides and gives us power and peace. That's a lot of homework this week. But I truly believe that if we live like Daniel, when we are faced with the impossible, God will prove himself to us as the God of the impossible. The God of Daniel and Harriet. The God of you and me. He will not abandon us in the impossible, but he will show himself trustworthy and true that all things are possible when he is on our side. We're going to close the service today singing Sea of Victory by Elevation Worship. And Justin and I have wanted to introduce this song for some time now, but it just seemed to happen to collide perfectly with our unshakable time frame. I think it's just another example of God's providence. Richard DeVoe says, it's impossible to win the race unless you venture to run. It's impossible to win the battle unless you dare, or victory, unless you dare to battle. Whatever weapon has been formed against you, it will not prosper. 
whether that weapon is your own DNA, the family you were given, your work atmosphere, the God we serve knows only how to triumph, and friends, he will not fail us. As we sing these words together and apply them to our own situations, let's believe that each of us will experience victory in facing the impossible in our lives. Let's dare to battle together with the Lord on our side. Would you stand and sing with us?